as the music dies away, we welcome you back to the final Religious Studies Project podcast of um, this academic year, 2015-2016. We'll be coming back in September, of course, with the new 2016-17 season. <laughs> I'm Christopher Cotter, and I'm joined by, as ever... David Robertson. And what have we got coming up this week? Well, this week we've got uh, Martin Lepage speaking with Mark Jurgensmeyer on globalized religion and the study of religious tensions. Um, and this was recorded at the Eastern International Meeting of the American Academy of Religion um, in Pittsburgh um, a couple of months ago. So we'll hand over to Martin. I am here today at the Eastern International Region meeting of the American Academy of Religion in Pittsburgh. I am with uh, Professor Mark Jurgens Meyer. Professor, hi. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Jurgens Meyer is the founding director of the Arfola Center for for global and international studies. Uh, you are an affiliate professor in sociology, religious studies, and global studies at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, some of our other, other auditors might be familiar with you from uh, the interview that you gave a couple of years ago on sociotheology and cosmic war in the, uh, with the RSP. Uh, you are an expert on religious violence, conflict resolution, and South Asian religion. Today we're going to talk about religion and globalization in general, uh, but we're going to also speak about your uh, research in uh, general as well. Um, let's just uh, dive into it with uh, a simple but maybe complicated question. What is globalization and um, maybe more specifically, what is global religion? Ah, wonderful question. Uh, globalization, of course, is uh, not what you narrowly think of, simply an extension of kind of uh, economic, American, Western-style economic hegemony over the rest of the world. Um, unfortunately, that's one aspect, but it, it, it's simply the transnational and transcultural intersection of ideas, economies, politics, society, uh, ideologies, stuff. <laughs> and it's been going on forever. I mean, there is a history of global interaction. One of the most globalized periods in history was the ancient Mediterranean world, for example, with the birthplace of Christianity, in part because it was a global religion. I mean, Buddhism developed as a global religion. And so in many ways, religious studies is probably the most global of disciplines within the university because religion has, by its character, always been um, a global phenomenon. So whatever aspect of religiosity and spirituality one is concerned about, whether it's textual studies, whether it's the social or anthropological aspects of religion, they've always had a transcultural and transnational character. But I think there is a subject called global religion. Uh, and, and that's, to me, I think one of the most promising and interesting areas of the future of the field of religious studies. That we know what world religion is, and it's in some ways discredited, and for good reasons. Uh, because in the 1950s, when um, 
academia seem to blossom with this interest in other cultural parts of the world, at least in uh, America and increasingly in Europe. Uh, it was in part for political reasons, in part to try to, uh, because the promotion of trying to understand particularly the third world during the era of the Cold War and how to uh, understand and infiltrate (laughs) the minds of people in other regions. So there were scholarships uh, given. I myself was a a beneficiary of the largesse that uh, allowed me to study Hindi uh, in order to study Indian religion uh, in graduate school um, through a government scholarship. Got me all the way through graduate school. Uh, So comparative religion became a kind of dominant motif, and no field of religious studies would be without an introduction to world religion. And that's often still the case. But increasingly, religious studies faculties rebel against not only teaching a course which they feel ill-equipped to teach, (laughs) and of course... All of us are ill-equipped to teach such a. All, all of us are ill-equipped equipped to teach any introductory course. Almost by nature, that's not the way we think. You know, at least in, as a research uh, agenda for religious studies. But unfortunately, our students entering the field uh, want to enter at a, enter at a, at, a, at a level that meets their somewhat simplistic questions and responds to their interests about the rest of the world. But it's been discredited not only because it's hard to teach, but because it, it just seems both intellectually and pedagogically unsound to use one cookie-cutter approach to look at all forms of religiosity throughout the world, as if there was a single thing called religion uh, that existed exactly the same way in every culture and every part of the globe. Uh, and we know that's not the case, and, and we feel dishonest <laughs> intellectually, uh, and, and somewhat irresponsible pedagogically when we're asked to teach a course in world religion. Those are all good reasons. But I think mm-hmm. to try to understand the intersection of religious traditions and cultures globally and to think in terms of global religion is a different agenda. Uh, and by that I mean not only respecting the diversity of forms of religiosity around the world, but also focusing on the way in which traditions and cultures and communities have intersected through time, uh, over time and and, and in space, uh, in in ways that really knit together into kind of a global tapestry of religious history. And I think to to study that and to teach that is um, a very interesting and promising uh, agenda Indeed, I myself teach a course on global religion, and the way I teach it, I'm teaching it right now, in fact, with a colleague of mine, the chair of the Religious Studies Department at uh, Santa Barbara. And the way Kathy and I teach this course is um, we give an, every week we focus on a different religious tradition. And so it does have a little bit of that, if it's Tuesday, it must be Taoism, you know, kind of (laughs) (laughs) character of the old religion course. But we look at, let's say, Islam, which is the subject this last week, uh, in terms of its global character, the the degree to which it's always been um, not just a local, regional, religious tradition, but one that has intersected, it it has expanded and intersected with other traditions around the world, and today is a vibrant part of the cultural tapestry of, of 
European society, American society, certainly South and Southeast Asia society, which, by the way, is where the majority of the world's Muslims live, and not the Middle East. <laughs> you know, that's our kind of fantasy to think all Muslims are like Saudi Arabia, which is such a small minority part <laughs> of the whole Islamic tradition. If you want to see real Muslims, you should go to Indonesia or Bangladesh, you know, <laughs> Pakistan, where most of the Muslims live. China, you know, more China. There are more Muslims in China than Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. So um, to understand this and, and understand its diversity is is uh, part of the mission of this introductory lecture. And then the it, the second uh, the second meeting, we go out and actually experience some aspect of that globalized tradition. We go to the Islamic Center of Southern California, for example. Right. Uh, and the Islamic Center of Southern California in L.A. is a wonderful place because. It is the Islamic Center. It's a mosque, um, but it, but it's one of the most diverse Islamic communities I've ever been to. Uh, there's a sizable uh, Black Muslim uh, constituency, a lot of Pakistanis, um, a, a lot of, of Turks. Uh, it's just and a lot of of, of um, kind of Western Euro-Americans, people we call Caucasian, who have converted to Islam. Uh, you know, it's just a very interesting, globalized mix, and it fits into one of the most cosmopolitan cities of the world, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. in, a, in an easy and understandable way. So, um, and then we also look at new religious tradition. We look at Scientology, for example, uh-huh. the celebrity center of Scientology, to try to understand how uh, globalization produces new forms of religiosity, new. Uh, uh, new characteristics of religious culture, and then talk about at least in one session the religiosity of our uh, the non-religious religiosity, <laughs> the, the religion of nuns, uh, the people who are increasing, <laughs> and by that I mean not the not the ladies on the bus, <laughs> those nuns, not the nuns, but the nones, the people who, yes. when asked to declare their uh, religious affiliation. Uh, do not check, uh, you know, Methodist or Catholic or Jewish or, but they also don't check atheist or agnostic. They check none. Right. Well, that's interesting. It is because what that signals is a kind of uh, a sensibility, which they will describe as spirituality. They're spiritual. They're not religious. That whole spiritual but not religious kind of way to identify in a religious spec right and it is a religious sensibility you mm-hmm. know it does fit on that spectrum and um, and, and these are these are I mean these are probably most of my students you know they're they're people who are uh, who are interested in religion they think religion is a valuable repository of something rich and deep and beautiful in the world's religious traditions. Uh, but they don't feel that they have to be exclusively tied to any of them. They can savor and appreciate all of them. So it seems to me that this is um, a mark of our current era of globalization. And this is what I'm getting around. The other point I'm getting around to is not just to see global religion as an aspect of religious traditions, but also a new form of religiosity that's a part of our contemporary experience. Uh, that we are uh, kind of like uh, 
as Bob Bella talked about, uh, you know, national societies as containing a civil religion. In some ways, there's a kind of uh, global civil religion. A global civil religion for a global civil society is, is increasingly there is a sense, in, in particularly in multicultural communities, the globalization that takes place in Los Angeles and yes. Montreal and and in uh, and, and globalized cities everywhere. Um, this experience of being uh, not just akin to uh, one's neighbor and their their different culture, but in some ways uh, an inheritor of it, to be um, to appreciate. For oneself, the complexity of, of culture. It seems to me that's the step beyond multiculturalism. Uh, maybe it's transculturalism. I don't know what it is. Uh, and, and it's a new religion. It's not exactly a lowest common denominator religion. Uh, that's one way of thinking about global religion. Uh, it, it's not something that negates religious traditions or the histories of faiths. Uh, in some ways it admires and elevates them, but does not cordon them off as if they were the province of only one people in one, mm. one community. It, it, they are a part of the world's cultural heritage. Yes. Um, so it, 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 I think we are emerging into an era of global civil society. That's the, that's the optimistic part of <laughs> our, our, our present, if we can get back beyond all of the... Uh, the kind of tribalism of the present, of which you've seen an enormous amount, including, I'm sad to say, in a, America's own present presidential elections. Um, but it's true in every uh, in every culture. It's the you know the thing that produces the kind of religious violence that I've studied for the last several decades. Uh, and, and I've always thought of this as one response to globalization. That is one response to the kind of cultural shifts that make everybody available to everyone else <clears throat> in the an internet era of instant communication and interaction. Uh, one uh, reaction is fear. Uh, reaction is uh, tribalism, uh, the assault on the traditional nation state, uh, the whole idea of nationalism and community being one person with one kind of nation. Now you have in France all these Muslims from from uh, you know the, the Algeria and the Middle East and Germany have all these Muslims from Turkey. How do you think of a Germany as a traditional community that's supposed to be Christian and is supposed to be, you know, ethnically pure? Uh, maybe not <laughs> an extreme to which Hitler thought of it, but at least have some kind of integrity. Um, well, that's that's that is a challenge. It's a challenge even in America. It's supposed to be, a, you know, a nation of immigrants. But it's white European immigrants and, 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 a, and a culture that, uh, that does not seem to any longer uh, privilege uh, white, male, Christian, heterosexual men <laughs> uh, is threatening to, 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 to some people. Uh, and so you get a kind of dogged uh, xenophobia and uh, hmm. tribalism as, as a response. And, and the extreme forms, of course, violence. And the, the religious expressions of religious violence and terrorism uh, are, uh, you know, from from the Christian militia to Al Qaeda and, and ISIS uh, are, you know, reflections of this. Mm. But there's another side. There's a flip side. 
Uh, and that's the part that we explored to some extent in this recent book, God in the Tumult of the Global Square, which is based on a six-year loose uh, foundation-funded project where we went all over the world, Moscow, uh, Shanghai, yeah. Delhi, uh, Cairo, Buenos Aires, to try to kind of gauge the temperature of religion in the 21st century uh, and in public religion and public life. And what we concluded is that there, there are two sides. One is this the destructive side, the religion of tribalization, but there's also the religion, the multicultural, the global religion, the religion of a new multicultural era, the religion that, that maybe has no name, the religion of the nuns, mm. uh, you know, but but really does uh, reflect a kind of growing sense of uh, certainly an, uh, certainly an ethical and moral dimension, a concern about the environment, uh, maybe most of all the kind of threat of, of, of global warming and, and of climate change and the and the sense of a shared responsibility uh, yes. for the future of this planet. Uh, so this is a moral challenge, uh, human rights uh, around the world, whether it's uh, rights for women, rights for minorities, rights for gays. It's, a, 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 it's something that there's a kind of common sensibility that we need to protect rights for all people. Uh, so these kind of common shared themes that cut across all forms of, uh, of uh, cultural and national boundaries is, is one aspect of a kind of growing um, moral consensus. But I think there's also a spiritual side, uh, you know, a sense that there is uh, a, a deeper sense of, of uh, reflection and a deeper sense of uh, purpose that, that unites all people on this planet. Maybe it doesn't take uh, explicit God language uh, or, or specific theological form, but it's one that, that intuitively uh, recognizes the value of religious traditions hmm. uh, and sees uh, traditional religion as allies uh, rather oh. than as uh, you know something to be feared um, or as resources for a new cultural religion. So you, and I think you see this in the kind of global saints that the world has produced. People like Mother Teresa or Mahatma Gandhi or Bishop Tutu uh, or the Dalai Lama mm -hmm. uh, or Pope Francis. They're all, they're all people that, that are admired uh, not just because they kind of have a moral clarity about them, but also they reflect the spiritual richness, whether they are, look at them, Hindu, Buddhist, yes. <laughs> Christian, uh, you know, that they, that they, they reflect, a, um, you know, a spiritual depth that, that, that people resonate with. They, they say, yes, there is something there, you know, yes. uh, this is, this is a, um, this is part of my religiosity, my spirituality, my um, morality, even though I'm not Specifically, I don't go to church. I don't go to synagogue. I go to temple. I don't do those things that <laughs> kind of old-fashioned, more traditional religious people do. Uh -huh. uh, but I think it is a part of the religiosity of a coming global religion. Exactly. In that s s sense, it speaks a lot about uh, power relations in society, how people deal with uh, the weight of institutions, of religious institutions, and how everyone deals with religious norms, how everyone is, has some kind of a freedom to act 
upon their own lives. Um, how do you see, like, is there some kind of a, what's your lens exactly uh, in regards to, to, to that? Uh, you've talked about your uh, recent book uh, about the tumult of uh, the global Square, and then we've talked a little bit earlier about your 2008 book, uh, Global Re Rebellion. Uh, do you see some kind of, a, of course, there is, but what is the gist of the continuity between those two books? Uh, there is this rebellion, and then there is this tumult. The yeah, rebellion yeah. is something that might be more individual as tumult is something that's more of a community thing? Well, the, the book, God on the Tumult of the Global Square, includes the kind of rebellion that's, uh, that I focus on in my earlier books, in a, but in a wider frame, uh, not just specifically in movements of political um, rebellion against uh, traditional authorities are... Uh, in the case of the, the book on terrorism, God, uh, Terror in the Mind of God, on, on movements that are, uh, are, are innately violent. <clears throat> But I look at the tumult beyond, beneath them. Mm -hmm. That is, what, what is the tumult that, that produces this? I, and I discussed this to some extent in, in the Global Rebellion, the whole kind of challenge of globalization to the nation state and, and the fragility of, of the national idea of nationalism the, yeah. there is a community the enlightenment notion that oh yeah you can you can as Rousseau says it's a social contract between a people and and their government well this assumes that there's a people <laughs> this assumes that you know <laughs> who you're talking about well and you know in the 18th century that was pretty clear you know the French were French and uh, and the Germans were German well they were not quite German there are all kinds of differences the Italians were all over the place but eventually they kind of you know you could get a sense of who they were and and they it made sense that there you could have a a government for those people uh, even then there were problems as I, as I said there were groups that felt well we're not really a part of them and and of course you know Hitler famously thought oh there's a Jewish question there's a problem there they don't really fit Um, but, but in, in a general sense, you, you know, you, it, it, it did sort of fit, never perfectly, never really fit places like the United States, you know, communities of immigrants. But increasingly, it doesn't fit. Uh, and it, it doesn't fit not just in, in those um, traditional societies that are increasingly becoming multicultural, where everybody can live everywhere and do. Uh, but also where everyone can be in contact with everybody anytime and do. And, <laughs> and so you have extraordinary places like the place I live in, Southern California, which is <clears throat> not only a great American city, it's also one of the largest Filipino cities. Mm -hmm. Just sheer number of Filipinos who live in, in Los, Los Angeles, one of the largest Iranian cities. Brentwood is called Tarangulus. You know, <laughs> the sheer number of Persians who live there. That's one of the largest Mexican cities. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, it's it has a huge Chinese, growing Chinese community and Thai community and uh, uh, and 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 Middle Eastern community. Um, it's a global. It's a global city, and the the people who uh, keep maintain their. Ties to their relations in 
in their geographic places of origin. But increasingly, they, they, these are, as Benedict Anderson once described them, email ethnicities or internet ethnicities, you know, people who are connected online, you know. And so the, the, the main kind of, um, kind of po uh, power of their communities in cyberspace. Uh -huh. uh, and, and of course, this, the younger generations become, you know, just it is an American in, in their, their cultural attitudes and gestures, and yet they are also multi multicultural. They uh -huh. also have these connections. Um, one of the guys who was working with me now as a research assistant on the Sujahadi project, just as kind of hang loose uh, surfer dude Southern Californian that you can get uh, <laughs> until the subject comes to Palestine because he's Palestinian and then you know then he's all over his kind of those ethnic connections and the kind of the importance that that has uh, to him uh, and uh, when he was at Amman Jordan ISIS tried to recruit him because they see you know this is the kind of person who could like very well and some do uh, and he was intrigued, I have to tell you. He obviously mm -hmm. didn't <laughs> join the movement. You know, he, he's working with me. But this is um, part of the complexity of our, our contemporary yes. uh, culture. Uh, and, and, and so even though the same uh, dynamics of anti-authoritarianism, uh, of a kind of break from a traditional uh, past, uh, whether it's political structures in the nation state or, or even traditional religious authorities uh, uh, that are part of the past. I mean, a lot of, even in the more strident movements are, are not the old clergy. I mean, if you, yeah. if you go to Egypt, uh, the, the clergy who are in charge of the mosque feel left out of it because the, the people are either following like the Muslim Brotherhood, which is non-clerical, has no support whatsoever from the traditional clergy are these televangelists, the kind of firebrand uh, revivalist Muslim ah. preachers, uh, some of whom have no political agenda whatsoever and some which do, but in either case they have no connection with the traditional clergy. That's something we don't understand about <laughs> a lot of these new movements, including those in, in uh, Islam. They are, they are as rebellious within their traditions as they are rebellious against uh, uh, like the West and other people they feel who are propping up the dictators of their, their region. So this is, these are all characteristics of a kind of a decentralized, localized, anti-authoritarian uh, characteristic of globalization when you feel like all the old traditional strictures and lines of authority are breaking down. And that leads to violence, leads to tensions, and, and the tensions sometimes lead to violence, but it also leads to hope. Because the same, the same thing that breaks down old structures and, and, and leaves uh, decay also leaves a, a promise of hope, a promise of future, of the building of new things and of new kind of connections and relationships. And that's the other part of, that we explore in this most recent book, God and the Tools of the Global Square, and where uh, Bob Bella, uh, I mentioned in the civil uh, religion, came to help us. Uh, he's an old friend of mine. We <clears throat> worked together at Berkeley for years, and I was director of the religious studies program there, and he was chair of my advisory committee. 
So after finishing a book on religion and human evolution, he came down from Berkeley and spent some time with us in Santa Barbara and thinking through this project and, and the whole uh, issue of, of whether there can be a religion of global civil society. And, and, uh, and typically, Bob doesn't just kind of comment. He writes essays. And he wrote <laughs> a wonderful essay for us, which I summarized in one chapter of this book, God in the Tomb of the Global Square. And is one of his last essays. Tragically, uh, he died just a few months later um, of, a, in a, of a hard situation. Um, but that essay is one of the most optimistic of essays of anything that I've read of Bella, who's not an optimist. I mean, he's a <laughs> pessimist by nature. He's like an Old Testament prophet. Uh, he has a very dismal view of the human condition, particularly uh, uh, the, uh, particularly American politics and politicians in general. Uh, uh, he he uh, once uh, described uh, uh, Nixon as in a nation of the crooks, the chief crook is president. <laughs> it kind of summarizes his point of view. Uh, and he has very dire prognosis for uh, humans as a society in the face of global warming and climate change. Mm. He wonders whether we're, as a, as a species, we're really going to survive this. But he is optimistic about global religion uh, in the sense that he sees this emerging, some aspects of this emerging culture of concern about climate change, about human rights, about, about our life together on this planet, uh, to have uh, both religious as well as ethical sensibilities that do lead to uh, the kind of Durkheimian notion of a common uh, glue that holds together uh, humanities that he was talking about in the case of uh, civil religion. Uh, for national societies, there can also be a civil religion for global societies, a global civil religion. In that context, in, the, in that regard, um, what about authenticity? Is there no more need for authenticity in a religious context? Are, are, are we done with authenticity? Whatever Within it is? religious traditions, I mean. Yes. No, I don't think so. I mean, uh, one of the things that Bella talks about in his essay is what... <clears throat> what he sees is is not in this emerging global um, religion of global civil society is not a watered down um, you know, lowest common denominator religion <laughs> uh, um, or, or even in uh, what's it Esperanto the language of uh, was kind of a, a Created language was supposed to be, to be the, yeah, yeah, the, the, the universal. Of everybody yeah. that never adapted. <laughs> <laughs> but just like language, people keep on speaking different tongues. Um, but they'd be more prone to translate, uh, be more prone to incorporate words from other uh, languages, uh, and they will appreciate the beauty of other other languages as a part of their own uh, heritage and their own tradition. Uh, and we and we do that with language, and and we do that with uh, with art and and, and culture, and, hmm. and and I think increasingly uh, with religion, and it, it will not uh, detract from the kind of authenticity of specific religious traditions or specific religious experiences, hmm. uh, but it will make them accessible uh, to. A wider, a global community, mm -hmm. in a way perhaps that they haven't been before. Mm -hmm. 
just talked a lot of, I think world religion or comparative religion was a kind of voyeur uh, approach to religious studies that would Oh, isn't this interesting what those funny people are doing over there? It's a kind of Margaret Reed Mead approach to uh, religiosity. Nothing against <laughs> Margaret Mead. Uh, but, but I think, uh, you know, we've gone beyond that when I, I just think of my own classes. When I first started teaching in religious studies at, at, at Berkeley, uh, y- you know, the class was like 80% or 90% white and 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 either Christian or Jewish and that's not the case anymore particularly in Southern California uh, I, any almost any religious tradition I talk about there's somebody there who is it or their mother is it and, <laughs> and they are they will correct me if I say something something wrong but more importantly, it's not that they are a bunch of strangers, you know, together looking at strangely at each other's faith. They are part of the same Southern California community, and their religious traditions, as different as they are, are part of that common mix. And that's what's changed. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that really is a shift from kind of a world religion um, curiosity about other faiths to a global a global religion appreciation hmm. of what is uh, the common heritage uh, that we all have of all religious traditions. Uh, would this be maybe the gist of your keynote address here at the AAR entitled Thinking Global? About yeah, this is what I'm talking about. Religion. What, what we've been talking about is what I'm right. talking about this afternoon. Right. It's about, about the emergence of global religion and, and okay. uh, how that's a part of the future in a positive way as well as a very optimistic indeed. negative way. <laughs> You've talked about a, lot, a lot about what happens in cities and about the influence of technology and the internet and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about people and traditions that are that take place outside of these uh, urban regions? What about people that are outside of that, that are that still have access to the Internet? Well, What? increasingly, there are, people, there are not that many people outside of that, or at least potentially outside of that. Uh, you know, this, this kind of uh, cosmopolitanism that <clears throat> I've said is characteristic of, of global cities is, is increasingly a part of the of the global world. This last year, I've been a pioneer in the field of global studies, which is kind of, as I've said, an attempt to try to look at aspects of the globalization of not just economies and technologies, but also culture and societies. And I've tried to encourage the creation of global studies programs uh, around the world, kind of missionary for the (laughs) global studies. So I was invited last year uh, to go to the University of Sikkim, Now, do you know where Sikkim is? I do not. <laughs> Have you ever heard the word Sikkim? I haven't. Uh, okay. Sikkim is a former kingdom, a separate little state, high in the Andes, kind of between um, Nepal and uh, Tibet and India. Uh-huh. It's adjacent to Bhutan. Okay. Uh, and Bhutan and Sikkim were both proudly separate kingdoms. Bhutan still is. Sikkim... 
uh, through its series of very interesting political uh, upheavals, uh, became merged with India. Uh, India basically took it over. Mm-hmm. But it's still predominantly Buddhist, and it's uh, kind of the Tibetan Buddhism of the region that's kind of contiguous with uh, Tibet uh, and, and, and eastern Nepal. So it's about as remote a, a plot of territory as you can get on the planet. <laughs> and the they have the universe the Indian government has just tried to create decided to create a university there. Didn't have a university, so they're going to create a university. They're just forming a new university at <laughs> at, at Sikkim. And and somebody I knew from Delhi from the uh, JNU, the Jawaharlal uh, Nehru University in Delhi, was invited to go to Sikkim. He was in fact himself uh, ethnically from that region. Uh, invited to go to Sikkim to be the chancellor, the vice chancellor, which is the same as the head of the president of the university. Mm-hmm. And in consultation with the local people, they decided to not just have a regular university with all the different branches that universities have but to have two special schools of focus. One would be on Himalayan studies, which makes perfectly good sense. It's up in the Himalayas, up in the mountain, you know, and their connections with Tibetan, Burma, and China, and all these places are very important uh, regionally. Yes. But the other school was global studies. Uh-huh. And he wanted the Sikkim University, arguably in the remotest spot on the planet, to be global in its outlook and its character. So I was invited to go to Sikkim University to be the keynote speaker for the first school of global studies in the Himalayas. And I had to take a small plane from Delhi and landed in a rice in a, in a, in a uh, uh, tea plantation near Darjeeling. And then a jeep met me. And then for five hours, we went through a torturous <laughs> mountain passes up to, uh, you know, Sikkim, which kind of sits on, perched on a peak in a canyon in, in uh, you know, 12,000 feet uh, foothills of, of the Himalayan mountains with the huge uh, scenery of the Himalayas in the background. And to, to a group that was eagerly em- embracing the field of global studies because they intuitively sensed that the future of any region, including one that's uh, as distant and as uh, as remote as Sikkim, has to embrace not only its region and its characteristic, but but the global world into which all people are are coming. Everybody had a cell phone. Everybody had internet. Yeah. Everybody was online. They may have been in Sikkim, but they were part of the global world. Interesting. How how is that? Uh, how how do these phenomena pertain to the future of religious studies per se? How does globalization and uh, the shift from the world religion paradigm to another par- paradigm will help further the discipline of religious studies as an interdisciplinary multidisciplinary yeah, yeah, I, think, I think it relates to religious studies in, in two ways it, it gives new stuff to study <clears throat> there are whole new phenomena uh, emerging that are interesting and 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 worthy of research and, and study in uh, my own university uh, at the religious studies department just uh, hired on a new person to focus on on secularism 
mm-hmm. and on um, non-traditional religiosity. <laughs> you know, the religion, religion of nuns, for example. Mm-hmm. And I have graduate students who are working on that field are trying to, one looking at the uh, um, universal life uh, church, you know, the one that people join in order to perform weddings. You know, for like ten dollars, send in your uh. <laughs> your money, and you can become a minister in the Universal Life Church. Well, <clears throat> it's kind of a sham in a sense, but it's also more than that. I mean, there are a lot of people who are Universal Life ministers who take seriously the idea that they are ministers, that they are, you know, expressing their own religion or a religion that they feel intuitively about them and, and the rights of, of marriage that they perform are, are interesting in themselves and, and as somebody uh, in my case I, I ordained so I perform weddings but in many cases mm. working with um, young people who, uh, who want to get married uh, but not in a traditional religious way and so we work together to, to create kind of rights that express not just the significance of their union, but the, the significance of the kind of community of which they're part and the, and the spiritual significance of the event. It's very interesting because, you know, we are in a sense fascinating. Um, I, uh, we're fascinating uh, in new forms of religion. Oh, I should tell you, the, the class project of our, our course on global religion, the thing that everybody has to do at the end of the class instead of an exam, create your own religion. Oh. So they have to, in teams of four or five, they have to get together and they have to, and sometimes it's kind of a spook, you know, it's a kind of, uh, you know, the religion of consumerism, the religion of <clears throat> Beyonce has been a popular religion. <clears throat> but, uh, but in other cases, the attempt to try to, there's religion of water and seeing water as the thing that connects all life, for example. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these are interesting ways of trying to think, uh, think in fresh eyes about religiosity and and non-traditional atmosphere. So that's a whole new arena to study. So that's one way in which global religion, I think, is a a boon to religious studies. But I think in another way, everything that we have always done in religious studies has been global. Uh, And I'll give you an instance, for instance, one of the first, in our Department of Global Studies in Santa Barbara, one of the first positions we had was went through an endowed chair, fellow who wanted to he wanted to promote Sikh studies. So I said, well, let's do this in the context of religious studies. So it's the position in Sikh and religious studies. And the idea is that scholar we had who has a wonderful job through most of the uh, you know 15 years that we've developed the uh, the, the program. As a textual scholar, he does the history of textual history of Sikh, of Sikh tradition, which you can think is about as narrow and as specific and uh, as non-global <laughs> as you can get. It's like you know uh, somebody who specializes in Deuteronomy or you know the uh, second letter of of, of, of John uh, in the in the New Testament is as you know. What does that have to do with global studies? Well, everything, as it turns out, because the emergence of the Sikh tradition was one of a kind of cultural interaction. Some of the early stories about Nanak is how he traveled around the world, you know. Well, he 
whether or not he really traveled around the world is kind of contested, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, that's part of the collected, received wisdom of, of the tradition. And so from the very beginning, as a tradition, even 500 years old, both the text and the history are a part of intersecting cultures and inter- interacting uh, uh, traditions that move beyond the kind of confines of any specific uh, regional and certainly national uh, limitations. So the way we don't have to study global religion, we can study religion globally. Hmm. And to think globally about the way we come to our uh, the, the phenomena that is our subjects of study uh, in order to bring up the richness of the context in which these uh, phenomena occurred and the diversity of their significance beyond any particular small community mm-hmm. of which they may be a part. So how, that's, I think, is a challenge and has been part of religious studies from the beginning. Right. How, how, how do you think that this is going to change the ways in which religious studies is, are thought, are taught? How do you think that this is going to change the way we teach it? Well, uh, already they say we don't, Santa Barbara no longer teaches world religion, uh, but they teach global religion. Uh, it's in part because I started teaching it, but not in the religious studies department and global studies. But now, uh, Kathy Moore, who's chair of religious studies, is taking it on uh, as a course within religious studies. Uh, and I hope that, uh, uh, you know, uh, she will continue teaching it even if I no longer teach it. Uh, and it will become a part of the uh, curriculum. So I think, I think uh, certainly as a field of studies, uh, it is something that students are interested in. It does respond to their natural curiosity about how other religious traditions are <clears throat> without lapsing into the old comparative religion, world religion template of uh, one cookie cutter fits all religious traditions uh, and, and enables the, the teacher to explore intellectually uh, the kind of uh, diversity and the interact uh, diversity of religious culture and the interaction of traditions in a way that's fun for them also I, I mean, I've, I've taught introductory courses a lot in my in my uh, in my teaching career and I found them intellectually some of the most satisfying courses to teach uh, precisely because they do require you to kind of weave together a narrative a common story about human history and human culture that's <clears throat> challenging, but it's really, really intellectually satisfying and exciting to to do. And um, so I uh, encourage people not to be not to shy away from <laughs> such courses or or feel like they're a burden. Uh, of course, they're a burden because they're a challenge. They're, you know, something that you gets you're not it's not in your comfort zone for many people. Uh, but it can probably be one of the most rewarding courses uh, you'll ever teach. All right, I think that we're done. Uh, did you have anything to add? No, it's fine. It was fun talking with you. Thank you. Another excellent interview there from Martin, and uh, thanks to Mark Jurgensmeyer as ever. So some other people we should say thanks to are the BASR, the British Association for the Study of Religions, and uh, the, the NASR, the North American Association for the Study of Religions. Our generous sponsors. You know, you know they, they bring... They bring the RSP to you, so 
Yeah, many, you, many you know, thanks. It's, it's you who should be thanking them, listener, because yeah. they fund us to provide this wonderful free service for you. It's true. I interrupted David there earlier when, when I jumped in with that extra thanks. So what were you going to uh, say, no, David? Not at all. I was just going to make some terrible joke about how this was recorded in Pittsburgh and we were recording the introduction in Edinburgh, you know, a Scotsman, an Irishman. Um, it's going to be edited, you know, in Canada. And it's just, it's, an, it's a, a piece about inter, international globalization. And we are increasingly a global enterprise. And um, as this podcast is going out, um, you'll be wending your way to Helsinki for the European Association for the Study of Religions conference. Um, and hopefully, um, will you be speaking to the, the executive committee? I will be there? presenting the Religious Studies Project to the executive committee um, at their meeting, um, looking for a, not money in this case but just uh you know um a bit of mutual support and recognition so um, helping us to bring more um scholars from from mainland europe that um, we've struggled to get because we can't afford to travel there all the time obviously so yeah. that's the that's the idea and so we hope to have more news on that for you when we come back in september Indeed. um but just because we're taking a break from producing new podcasts, that doesn't mean that the RSP is going to go quiet over the summer. Um, you might have heard about a certain book called After World Religions, Reconstructing Religious Studies, co-edited by Cotter and Robertson, Routledge 2016. Have you heard of this? I have heard of it, but do you know what I would like, Chris? I would like to be able to hear some of the contributors um, talking about these kind of ideas before I buy any you know, book. Although it is quite reasonably priced. It is. Um, it is for an academic text, actually, I must say. Um, so over the summer, we're going to be um, posting to social media um, our podcasts with contributors to Afterworld Religions. So um, you can look forward to how we're going to do this. We've got Jim Cox, Steve Sutcliffe, Stephen Ramey, Russell McCutcheon, um, Dominic Corey Wright, Carol Cusack, Brad Stoddard, Brad Stoddard, Craig Martin, yep, Tamu Tara, yeah, I think we've got uh, Suzanne Owen. I think we've got all of them, and we? Dave McConaughey, Dave McConaughey, yeah. Um, I hope we haven't missed anyone out there. That was a risky guess, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and all the others, of course. Um, so yeah, we'll be posting one of those up every week. Um, but that's you know part of the summer break is is. To give you a chance to, you know, it's some, I know that it's not always possible to listen to every podcast that you subscribe to every week. So this gives you a couple of months to catch up and, you know, dive into our archive because we do have quite an extensive archive now. Yeah, I think we're, we're approaching 200. Um, this, this one is at 190. Wow. But that's the numbered ones. There are several that don't have numbers. Bonus ones. So yeah. I think we're actually past 200 now. Yeah. Well, we look forward to bringing you that archive over the summer. And as we said, we'll be posting it on social media. So do follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, if you're not already. And iTunes. Yeah. And don't forget about our Amazon links. You know, but, uh, yeah, but thanks. Thanks for listening. Major thanks. Yeah. All the thanks. Big up. Thanks. <laughs>